Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today we have a very special guest. Dr. Swim, would you like to introduce yourself? So uh, I'm Janet Swim. I'm a professor of psychology at Penn State University. I've been here for a long time. I got my degree at University of Minnesota. And then around 2008, I guess, I started looking at environmental research and so and, and climate change. And then started to merge my interests together between climate change and research on gender. That's a, like such a perfect fit for this podcast <laughs> because we definitely explore things through a, a gendered lens and also are very interested in climate politics and environmental politics. So this is super exciting. You've received a lot of press lately, or your one particular study has received uh, a lot of press that's come out recently. Let me get the exact title. So this is in the journal Sex Roles. The title was Gender Bending and Gender Conformity, The Social Consequences of Engaging in Feminine and Masculine Pro-Environmental Behaviors. So the way that I found my way to your study was a flurry of articles that said that men don't recycle because they're afraid it's gay. <laughs> Which is not how I would characterize the full study or multiple studies that were published in this paper. So how would you summarize your article, like, abstract length? <laughs> so I guess I'd probably do a little bit longer than that, but I'd probably say that we were interested in the context of gender differences in choices about environmental behaviors. Sometimes people's choices are based upon their what they think the consequences are going to be for doing those behaviors. So we wanted to study what are some of the gender-related consequences of engaging in pro-environmental behaviors. And so our first two studies looked at what people expected about the other people in terms of whether or not they had feminine or masculine traits and their sexual orientation. And then the last study looked at what are some of the actual consequences in terms of if you've decided you're interested in it, how people might choose to avoid you or, or, or approach you in those conversations. So that's the context for it. And um, the first set of studies, then we gave people um, scenarios about uh, a man or a woman a series of um, pro-environmental behaviors. So it's not just recycling, as the headlines kept saying, but it has to do with whether or not people, um, a particular person, had decided to, for instance, recycle, use organic food, decorate their room in such a way that it would have more light in it, buy sustainable clothes. There's a series of things, and that was the feminine one. I, I shouldn't say feminine one, but I should say that was the one that people expected women to do. And then there is another set of a uh, profile, another set of behaviors in a profile. And that was um, things like keeping your car maintenance up, keeping the tires inflated, putting clocking in your window. And those are the behaviors that people expected men to do. And so what we did then was we told people either a man or a woman was doing it. And we wanted to know first whether or not they saw the person as having feminine traits or masculine traits. And then also wanted to see whether or not they expected the person to be a gay, lesbian person or heterosexual. So what we found was that people expected everybody to have feminine traits. So no matter what behavior, 
they did, whether whether the gender behavior, they were all seen as relatively feminine. And in part even tire inflation? Yeah. And then we think it's because pro-environmental behaviors are seen as caring. So feminine is not just, the, do you see the person as feminine? The feminine is, do you see the person as being nurturing and caring for others? And so if you're doing something for the environment, people say you're being caring and nurturing for others. And so all of the behaviors lead to these feminine attributes. So that's why I keep stumbling over the word. They're all feminine. Even the behaviors associated with men, they're feminine. But we were also interested in the sexual orientation and the idea that lay people have a what's called a gender inversion theory. And that gender inversion theory is that if you do things that are out of your gender role, then you might be gay. But if you do um, in your gender role, then you're probably heterosexual. And so people don't know what somebody else's sexual orientation is. So they use these large categories to make those judgments. And they're not accurate. But that's what people use. So that's what we looked at, and we found that if this person was doing a behavior that was consistent with their gender, then they were seen as heterosexual. If they weren't, it's actually a whole range. So on average, people just didn't know. So it wasn't that the person, a man who recycled, was gay. It was that a man who did a series of behaviors, some people thought they were gay, some people thought they didn't know, some people thought it was heterosexual, and it just averaged out to people who just didn't know. That's the first set of studies, and I won't go into the second one. I think the first one is probably clear, so if you have any questions about that. In your research, do you look at gender identity at all? Because some of this, to me, seems like a conflation of sexual identity and gender identity. Yes, that's a very good point. So in terms of gender identity, we usually just use, in terms of behaviors, whether or not people are going to do behaviors or not, we look at when people self-classify based upon gender. And so we don't look at in terms of what, what I might call extent to which you feel like you're feminine or masculine, which is one way of defining gender identity. Another way of defining gender identity is the extent to which you feel a close connection with your gender group. We have looked at that variable to see whether or not that predicts anything. Um, so it doesn't. Basically. So it's, it's really just sexuality that people project. Well, it, the sexuality part was actually, this is the first study, well, not the first study, but the first study we looked at in terms of people's impressions of the person's sexuality. You had those stories about the person either recycling or fixing their car and, and other things like that. And then you said, you, you asked them two questions, right? You asked the participants to rate the person as being a more masculine or more feminine and then also gay or straight, right? Basically, yes. So the, we didn't ask someone or masculine. We asked them like 12 different traits. Okay, you're right. Yeah. And then the feminine or masculine, it wasn't, this is a, a short assessment, and this is where we probably would do the study differently if we did it again. But we just had people use a slider scale. And it's, so one side was heterosexual and the other side was gay or lesbian. And, and they picked where they put it. So it, it conflates sexual orientation and doesn't put into it their um, transgender or, or gender fluidity, that's not in there. So it's really just this scale, one item scale. So they were rating people on an assessment of a, a scale of, of gay to straight or straight to gay and then adjectives, which were more masculine or feminine. And you were looking at which adjectives people chose and that was a measure for if the participants perceived the person as being more masculine or feminine. So if you could do it differently, how would you measure that? 
I might, instead of having a slider scale, I might have a series of categories, series of gender grouping, and have people say, how confident are you that the person is heterosexual? How confident are you that they're gay or lesbian? How confident are you that they have gender fluidity? So I might actually give them a series of questions and not just one. I'm like imagining a one to 10 heterosexual, one to 10 gay or lesbian, like, but what's so interesting is that you had them on the same bar with heterosexuality opposite homosexuality. And I think that's always a really curious one because I feel like traditionally with like personality measures, you see like masculinity and femininity on separate scales and you can be high in both and, and androgynous, you know? So I always think it's fascinating whether these things are opposing or if they have more similarities in common. So this is just me kind of thinking about it. Yeah, so original scale had it opposing each other. But if I were to do it again, I wouldn't do it opposing each other. I would probably separate them out to be get a better sense of what is it that people are thinking. And then I would have a sense of confidence. So that zero to 10 is kind of how confident are you. I think what you've done is, is so cool. And I love that science is like, this is how we did it. And this is where we got all our participants and we can't run them all through it again. So maybe next time. <laughs> I have a lot of things that I would like to fix about the scales I gave for my thesis. So <laughs> yeah, no, it was fascinating to me. I was just telling Karen, when I was an undergrad, I had some probably politically incorrect opinions about social psychology. And I think that if I had known that this was the kind of stuff like that aligned with my environmental policy interests, I might have taken a very different career path. It was really interesting to me. And then did you want to talk about the second part of the study where, where I think it was people were choosing conversation partners? Yeah, they were choosing conversation partners. And so what we did was they, um, we had people come into uh, a lab room. So it's a room with a whole bunch of computers and they are told that um, they're going to have a conversation about the environment. And the first thing they do is they say, what are you interested in talking about? And we give them these lists of behaviors and then we say, okay, you're going to be paired up with a partner and we're going to give you a choice of four possible people. And some of the people in the room with you, some of them are in another room. And so we give them a, names of four people and we say, these are the behaviors they chose that they wanted to talk about, but they actually don't exist. We made up these people and their behaviors were what we wanted them to see. And so we did the same sort of pairing is that, okay, here's this person, I think her name is Julie, and Julie is interested in talking about recycling and um, room decorating. And then here's John, and he's interested in organic foods and room decorating. And then here's Melissa, and she's interested in cars. And, and so we gave this whole thing where there's four people then, and then they get to say, well, who do you want to talk to? Rank orders, because we'll try and pair you up with whoever you want to talk with. And so we were looking then about did people pick people based upon gender of the person? Did they pick a partner based upon the type of interest that they had? Or did they pick them based upon that combination? And so women wanted to talk to women more than men. Women wanted to talk about the behaviors that were associated with women more than the behavior associated with men. But it wasn't anything about the particular combination of those two. And so what ends up is that actually women were saying they wanted to talk to women with interests in the female-oriented behaviors, and they didn't want to talk to men with the interest in the masculine-oriented behaviors. 
if you add up those two possible things that they want to talk with women and, and the topics they want to talk about. Men, on the other hand, their least favorite person to talk to was the woman with interest in these male-oriented behaviors. <laughs> they were equally interested in everybody else. So it's the rejection of women who are interested in these um, male behaviors. So specifically masculine-coded environmental behaviors or pro-environmental behaviors. Um, we don't know. The study doesn't say whether it's because they wanted to avoid somebody who thought they, the person might be um, gay or, les or lesbian. Or it could be that they just feel uncomfortable with that conversation. Or it could be that the cued in, if somebody is a woman who's so interested in the environment that she's doing these things that are out of her gender role, she must be a really strong environmentalist. And people don't like environmentalists. They see them as eccentric, overreactive, and um, whiny. So they give them some feminine attributes, but they also give them some more broader categories of just odd people. So we don't actually know why men were avoiding it. It could be because they had assumptions about sexual orientation, or it could be that it's really this is the prototypical feminist and or prototypical environmentalist, and I just don't want to talk to them. <laughs> I want to sit with that for a second. I'm kind of struck. I mean, it's hilarious, but not surprising. <laughs> I was just surprised that the headline was like, women don't want to talk to men about environmentalism. Like to me, that was like the, the much bigger takeaway. And there was one tiny sentence in your conclusion about how if someone was closeted, they might avoid cross-gender, pro-environmental behaviors, because that might reveal what they were trying to conceal. But there is nothing in your study about men are, don't recycle because they're afraid people will think they're gay. So where do you think the media got that from? Yeah, I even, I looked over the press release from Penn State, and it's not in there either. So where did it come from? <laughs> I wondered that too. So when, when, particularly when the Colbert thing came out, and I thought, where did that come from? And I thought, well, I guess we kind of got the point, the big picture point. But um, I just think it was clever is why. It's a clever phrasing. And if you don't think about what the study, the narrowly defined thing about the study, and if you read, just read the introduction, so if you only read the introduction to the paper, you would see that in the past we found that women were willing to do any sort of pro-environmental behaviors. Men were only willing to do the ones that were associated with men, and they weren't willing to do the ones associated with women. But as a researcher, I, I would say, well, no, we actually have to do a study to say what you just claimed. There is just another set of studies that is probably closer to what we said. It's called compensatory masculinity. So if men do something that's feminine, they feel like they have to compensate and show their masculinity. And so there is a, some studies that have shown that when men look like or might look like that they're feminine, then they do avoid using grocery bags. And they are more likely to choose to eat red meat over um, they have a vegetarian diet. So there is some studies that do show that men avoid these things when they're concerned about their how they might feel. What's different is that those studies don't look at sexual orientation uh, assumptions about whether or not men are concerned about sexual orientation. And they actually don't even look at why they're concerned. They just know that if men's masculinity is threatened, they tend to avoid these behaviors. I think that's so fascinating. 
So some of the studies that were included in this paper were college students. I'm assuming they were psych undergrads at Penn State. Yeah, this, um, the second study was, so or the third study, I'm sorry, the, the social exclusion study was students. The first set of two studies were um, more general population. It's using a, a sample that's called MTurk, Mechanical Turk. I have a question about the measure that you used on the third study, the conversation pairs study to determine a person's level of prejudice against gay and lesbian people. Was that a measure that was a little bit older? It was. It's a little older, and um, it has a whole bunch of subscales. And so we picked the one subscale that had to do with social distancing. Yeah. No, I just had a question about that because, you know, attitudes change and, and times change. And someone who was more homophobic 20 years ago might be more blatant about it than someone today might have more of a, a dog whistler or a coded way to that they're expressing their prejudice, I, I suppose. So I was just wondering just the way that you thought about that. Well, I think that I, I like that subscale, not only because it was relevant to the particular study, but because it's, it is a bit more subtle. It's the sort of measure that you could say, there are lots of reasons why I don't want to sit next to somebody who's gay or lesbian. You know, it's, I just feel uncomfortable. It's nothing about them. You know? So there's a lot of excuses people can give. And so I don't remember the means on it. We did find that men were more likely to have higher levels of prejudice um, than women, which is pretty consistent. And I would say that looking at the distribution of them, there wasn't like so low that there was no variance in it. So uh, I think that one actually works still pretty well. Yeah, this is another like how the science sausage gets made and how you check for these things because people have thought about that. (laughs) (laughs) And that's something that you explore. So I always think it's really funny when I'm trying to choose a measure, like what are the studies that have used this measure before? What are the psychometrics of the measure, you know, and comparing your sample and their scores to what you tend to see with that measure. So this is like actually really fun for a nerd conversation. (laughs) So I'm just starting. I took... Stats is like a very traditional stats class. Uh, And I know the way that we look at statistics is changing so much in psychology. And I noticed your study had so many um, comparisons. Did you do corrections for those? So like Bomberoni or something like that? Yes, we did. I was trying to think what it was, but we did do corrections, particularly in the um, last study because we had to do so many paired comparisons, but all of them. So we used a, a, a more stringent test because we did more, more comparisons. That's awesome. So I'm, I'm glad because you have such a, a history and body of research, and I feel like those are where you see people kind of not taking into account all these like new things. So for the uh, statistical nerd, the first studies actually ended up being the, um, we did this meta-analysis within study meta-analysis. Yeah. And so that's where you combine the results across the two studies and you look at the size of the effects. When you start looking at sizes of effects rather than statistical significance, that's where you can start thinking about things differently. So the first two studies, you could look at the data and look at sizes of effects. So anyways, just for the statistical person who's taken stat. And and that's kind of a new novel thing to do within study meta-analysis. So. I do think that it's interesting that your other point that I, I do think that the media has given women a pass on this. They're saying, oh, look at men, but they're not saying, look at women. They were avoiding men. 
and women and men both had these these expectations. It wasn't just that men had these expectations. And there's a whole set of behaviors we haven't talked about that are, these are all pro-environmental behaviors. They're anti-environmental behaviors as well. So you can say that if you buy a car with this gets really bad mileage, that's kind of an anti-environmental behavior. But you can also say that if you blow dry your hair every morning with a 750 watt blow dryer, that's not actually very pro-environmental. So there are a series of pro-environmental behavior or anti-environmental behaviors that women do, and people are not talking about that. It's in part because the anti-environmental behaviors women do are smaller <laughs> in, in impact. Or maybe considered more pro-social. Like, women are supposed to look a certain way, you know? And, like, I get men, men's supposed to have a nice car, but you could have, like, a, a shiny sports car versus, like, a giant Hummer or something like that. Yeah. In some sense, it's been, having a sports car is actually a much higher environmental impact than blow-drying your hair. But I do often wonder about the makeup industry. It's a huge industry. And the amount of resources that we put to putting, you know, making makeup um, and that's a very gendered behavior. And that's never talked about as an anti-environmental behavior, except for maybe if you use um, makeup that's not cruelty free. Yeah, so I think there is a lot of talk about the human impact, that nurturance kind of thing, where who's mining, what is the name of the sparkly stuff? Is it like mica or something? Yeah, yeah. So there is some talk about the human impact of the kind of labor involved, but I don't think there is as much. I think that's a really astute observation. Yeah, there are a lot of people talking about the health impacts. There's like the Environmental Working Group and the Campaign for Safe Cosmetics have been doing a lot about carcinogens in cosmetics and how they're not as closely regulated in the United States as they are in Europe. But it's more about a personal health risk and a risk if you were to become pregnant to your child rather than um, to the environment as a whole. They don't they really talk about that. Yeah, and there's cruelty-free discussions, but it isn't, you're right, that's my point, is that all these tiny little plastic bottles or tubes or resources that are being extracted to ship all these things around the country, we're not talking about that. Yeah, this is one of the first topics I started writing about when I started blogging was like the idea of like ethical cosmetics. And, you know, a lot of the companies will kind of have this, this very green thing, but then they'll still use fragrance and won't like disclose that there's petrochemicals in there. Or like there's another company that touts everything is organic, but there's an expose that they use a lot of child labor. It, it was very bizarre to me. This is why I only get free samples of makeup. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to support the makeup industrial complex. <laughs> it's not that I'm a broke grass. <laughs> touchy because, and it's touchy in a sense for, for feminists because it's like, well, why don't you want to support feminine women? And so um, it's hard. It's, it's a difficult conversation. Just don't want them to get cancer or contribute to pollution. <laughs> That's all. There is no ethical consumption under capitalism, even if you're feminine. <laughs> I just had a question. Do you have any recommendations for people who are not academic to learn more about your area of interest, like the intersection of psychology and, and climate change and stuff like that? Any any books or websites? You know, I, I can't think of anything right now there, in the sense that, well, there, there are some places that I would go like climate reality and there are 
various sites that are relatively more or less psychology oriented in them. Um, George Mason's Center for Climate Change is a great set of information. Um, so there are various places for climate change, but I don't know that any of them really deal so much with gender. In fact, I don't know anybody who does. So what, what is the other work you're doing? Things that are in development are um, using some virtual reality to um, teach people about some earth systems. So they get an immersive experience and we want to teach them about something that's called the, the critical zone. The critical zone is the area of the top from the top of the trees down to the bottom of the groundwater. And so it goes beyond what people normally think about the biosphere. And then you've got various carbon cycles and water cycles that go through it. And so it's, it's a science education, but it's trying to teach people things that help them understand um, systems, um, biological systems. So it's immersing people in that. So they get to go and explore an area and they get to click on something and the ground comes up. And so, so we're trying to make some role playing. So that's one. I'm looking at another set of research where it's looking at what are the sorts of experiences that people have in nature that lead them to change their feelings and, and thoughts about themselves. So self-transformative experiences all in nature. Oh, that's so common. It's trying to differentiate between what we call hedonic experiences and eudaimonic experiences. So being happy and joyful versus having some self-reflection and meaning-making. So we're, we're doing that, and we're doing that actually with a group of um, Skomont Cuba Bot Botanical Center, looking at having people spend times in their yard itself, and then start connecting that to planting native plants in their yard. So my mom has been doing some of that. She's also in Brooklyn, so we have like a ten by ten backyard in her home, but she's planting native plants. Excellent. And she go out there and enjoy them. Oh, she does. Really, she does. One of my, like, lotto fantasies is buying her a huge plot of land to garden in and then relax in. <laughs> the other part, I do look at the way that emotions um, in general. So some of it has to do with empathy, looking at empathy towards animals and hope. So that's a big area that we look at. Do people feel hopeful about their ability to make changes. And so that actually predicts whether or not somebody's going to do something. If you feel hopeful about working with other people, if you don't feel hopeful, then you're less likely to do something. Boredom is the other thing. If you think about you're going to be bored if you do this, you don't bother. So hope and boredom are two things that we found to be important, emotional responses to the thing that you want to do, which is different than your emotional responses to climate change itself. So I have that, that sort of research too. So a lot of affect work with how affect. So I'd probably say affect and systems thinking. So the cognition, seeing yourself as part of a system, not just an individual actor, but and how feelings become a part of those decisions. So like very macro to kind of very micro. So how you see yourself in the system and then how likely are you to actually do a behavior in your near future? Yeah, that's really cool. So it's also kind of interesting on a political level in that individual actions and their impact do have an effect, but doing these things at the same time as the current policy of deregulation, I have this sense of almost burnout. Like, how much am I going to do to counteract these larger systems? <laughs> yeah, that's why I think it's important to think about community actions and what you can do with other people. So I'm trying to remember the person's name who did the film No Impact Man. But one of the things I, that I have with that is so he started off by himself and his family to get to have no impact. 
But the last thing he says to people, if you want to do something, join a group. And so that's what I tell people. And when I first started doing things on, on climate change and psychology, people would ask me, radio people in particular would ask me, if you had to tell people one thing they would do, what would you tell them to do? And I hated that question. <laughs> like, this is, there isn't just one thing. But then I decided after watching No Impact Man, the one thing I would say is join a group of people who are doing something. Because you're not by yourself. You can feel like you're doing other things. You have social support for you know, what to do. You get learn about things you can do. You have more social influence with a group. So that's my one behavior is join a group. So if people want to learn more about your research, should they go to your website, follow you in social media? How should they find out? Probably go to my website. I mean, if you want a general overview, um, I, I do have a Twitter account. I try and be not post a lot of things on it, just things when I want to publish something. So I have a Twitter account. I think it's Janet Swim and my um, webpage for general. It's swimlab.weebly.com. Great. And you can follow me on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie, P-I like the number pie. And you can follow me at uh, Karen. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feministcoffeehour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and Feminist Coffee Hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.